Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Bruce Mathers, chair of the Florida Historic Capital Foundation. As Secretary of State, I was a constitutional officer, and to demonstrate the safety of it, I kept my offices in the old historic Capitol building. We'll review Florida's Cold War era plans for dealing with a nuclear attack. Realistically, we know that there would be a good number that would die. And we would have to take care of burying them. And naturalist John James Audubon in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On June 25, 1845, a band played Hail Columbia, cannons were fired, and William Dunn Mosley was sworn in as the first governor of the state of Florida. The gathering in Tallahassee celebrated the fact that Florida had just been named a state and that the new Capitol building had been completed. More than 130 years later, as a new Capitol building was being constructed, Florida's historic state capitol was threatened with demolition. Then-Secretary of State Bruce Mathers led the effort to save the historic Capitol building, and he's now chair of the Florida Historic Capitol Foundation. Smathers explains why our state capitol is in Tallahassee, far away from most Floridians. It's actually a factor of history and population. Uh, when Florida first became a United States territory in 1821, it was composed of two Spanish colonial territories, East Florida, which, whose capital was in St. Augustine, and West Florida, whose capital was in Pensacola. And in order to create a unified territory, after trying to rotate the uh, territorial legislature between these two East and West Florida capitals, and they had to basically sail around the peninsula of Florida. Uh, one, one time, the Pensacola delegation almost foundered and was lost trying to sail from Pensacola to St. Augustine around the Florida Keys. So uh, one of the first acts in 1823 was that they designated a central location uh, for the new state capital, approximately halfway between Pensacola and St. Augustine. And that location, of course, was Tallahassee. After Florida was named a United States Territory in 1821 and Tallahassee selected as its capital, in 1824 a capital building was started but never completed as designed. 
It was torn down in 1839, and the original state capitol building was constructed in 1845, just in time for Florida's official statehood. It's basically just a square rectangular two-story building with Dory columns on both sides, uh, one facing the Dory column entrance is facing east toward St. Augustine, and the western side faces toward the old capitol in Pensacola. And it was a brick building, uh, and it came effective upon statehood in 1845 and actually was the state capital until 1902. Following the Civil War and moving into the 20th century, the possibility of moving Florida's capital to a more central location was discussed. The old state capital basically lasted for some 55 years and at statehood Florida had less than 60,000 people of which 40 percent were, were African slaves because it was antebellum. Uh, by 1900 uh, we had moved up to approximately 10 times that over 580,000 people and the state had really begun to expand. Flagler had moved his railroad to Miami past Palm Beach and Tampa had already was of course a bustling port as well as Jacksonville and so there was a, a decision that we ought to really we had to expand the state capitol building because the population had increased 10 times and should we move it to some more centrally located spot. At that point, the centrally located spots were Ocala and Jacksonville. That were the only considerations, and the majority of the population was located around Tallahassee in that stretch, and they voted to keep it in Tallahassee. That was in the turn of the last century. On November 6, 1900, Florida voters decided to keep the state capital in Tallahassee. Legislators decided to expand and renovate the 1845 Capitol building. Architect Frank Pierce Milburn was selected to remodel the building and he added a classical dome to it. Bruce Mathers. In 1902, they moved away from the rectangular building. They just expanded the capital based upon the original capital. But they added a very impressive dome and they took the Dory Columns to maintain that and expanded it both to the north and the south with new legislative chambers. Fascinatingly, the 1902 Capitol building was the last time that all of Florida's state government, both executive, legislative, and judicial, the Supreme Court, were all housed under one roof, the 1902 Capitol building roof. And it was state, state government was so small, they actually had to, to lease out some of the basement floors to private parties to fill the building up. That situation changed, though, as Florida experienced a land boom in the early 20th century and the state's population swelled. In 1923, architect Henry J. Clutho nearly doubled the size of the state capitol building. So they began to design a new capitol building, which was finished in 1923, which was actually taking the old capitol building and adding a east and west wing, creating a familiar cross pattern with the dome in the center. And then that didn't last more than about... 15 years when they had to design another new capitol building because Florida's population and government were growing so rapidly. In 1978, the Florida legislature moved into a brand new 22-story state capitol building. When Bruce Mathers was elected Secretary of State in 1974, there was an ongoing effort to tear down the historic state capitol. The effort to tear down the historic capitol building was really based upon trying to justify building a brand new state capitol building and that was really the idea of the northwest or the northern Florida legislative delegation, the pork choppers who controlled the legislature and had controlled the legislature all throughout Florida's history up to that time. Uh, in the 1960s, the Supreme Court ruled a one-man-one vote for both legislative chambers, where previously 
each one of 67 Florida counties, no matter how small or unpopulated, each had at least one state representative for each county. This allowed the rural counties to dominate. In fact, Florida was the most um, misrepresented uh, state legislature in the country. 14% of the legislature base of the population of Florida voted and to elect the controlling majority of the state legislature in the House. Smather says that with the North Florida delegation in control of the legislature, one reason that enthusiasm was strong for a big new Capitol building was that its construction would ensure the state Capitol would remain in Tallahassee. Politicians can't say we need more government space because government is growing. And the Northern, North Florida pork choppers couldn't say we want to create a new state Capitol building in Tallahassee, so the efforts to move the state Capitol down to Orlando or Central Florida, which was not only from the Central Florida delegation, but also from the South Florida delegation who didn't like to travel all the way to Tallahassee. Interestingly, Tallahassee is 200 miles closer to Atlanta, Georgia than it is to Miami, Florida. And so it was logical at some point we should consider this. Well, the old Capitol building um, was basically not sufficient sized for all of the new state legislative functions and in the new 1968 constitution um, which approved one man one vote for both legislative chambers this would have suddenly taken the power away from the pork choppers in North Florida and then the Central Florida and South Florida delegations could have voted to move the capital. They knew that if they built a brand new state capital building in Tallahassee that the state capital would remain in Tallahassee into the 21st century. Smather says there were powerful people behind the effort to tear down the historic state capital. As Secretary of State though, Smather successfully led the effort to preserve the building. First, there had been a movement to save the historic Capitol building, but as you stated, the legislative powers and even the press in Florida all believed the argument that the historic building was unsafe. This was the justification to put the new Capitol building up. Uh, the pork choppers couldn't say, I want the new Capitol building in Tallahassee because we want to save all the state jobs that state government represents. and they could. They couldn't say we need to build more building because state government is, is really outgrown the present facilities. So the justification was that the old historic Capitol building was structurally unsound and a fire hazard and it was endangering not only the legislators and the governor and the executive branch and those who work in the Capitol building but also the visitors. So they put it as a, a structural problem of the historic Capitol building which actually did not exist. We were successful by first doing several things. We changed the tone of the debate. Everybody was talking about tearing down the old Capitol building. We changed it. We want to save the historic Capitol building. Because literally, the state Capitol building is the most historic structure, historically important structure in Florida since Spanish colonial days. It has encompassed our entire history from territorial days all the way up to the present, landing a man on the moon, in Disney World. So uh, the destruction of this building would have been an irreparable loss to the state of Florida. To prove that the historic state capitol building was, in fact, still quite safe, Bruce Mathers chose to stay in the building even after the new capitol was completed. In 1978, at the end of my term, 
of the new Capitol building was completed and all of government, the legislature had already moved its offices into the new Capitol structure, but the whole state government moved, including the executive branch. As Secretary of State, I was a constitutional officer, and to demonstrate the safety of it, I kept my offices in the old historic Capitol building. And we remained there um, until basically um, we had won the battle. Herschel E. Shepard of Shepard Associates Architects and Planners of Jacksonville led the restoration effort to return the state capitol to its 1902 appearance. The historic capitol building is now a museum preserving Florida's entire history as a state with exhibits and artifacts. First of all you have the historic chambers of 1902, the Senate and the House, uh, the state Supreme Court changer, as well as the governor's office. And this in itself, just to walk in there and you get an appreciation of what government was like at that time. Then they have a lot of, we have a lot of informative exhibits um, which show the various phases because the, the capital dated from antebellum times, which was before the Civil War when we were a slave state. Um, the Capitol building was one of the, well, the only Capitol building in the Confederacy that didn't, east of the Mississippi River, that did not fall into Union forces during the Civil War. They entered after that. They take various areas like women's rights or uh, changing constitutional law. Uh, the right to attorney actually originated from a Florida case. Um, we also have, you know, the various governors. Uh, we look into the environment and how the, the question of saving Florida's environment with our expansive population growth. How do we save our, you know, our beaches, whatever it may be. But it's a comprehensive view of basically Florida life and how it interacts with the Florida political process. Bruce Mathers was instrumental in the effort to save the historic state capitol building back in the 1970s, and today he's leading the effort to enhance and revitalize the museum inside. We're going out and seeing how we can modify some of the laws to ensure that the historic capitol building is properly maintained. Uh, the present funding, for example, of a state office building that was built two years ago is the same formula that's used for a building that's over 150 years old. Um, and you just can't maintain a old historic building like you can a modern, uh, efficient new office building. What uh, we want to do is really to make this a current museum which will be informative and enjoyable for all of the public from kids to adult populations who are visiting Tallahassee and then ultimately what I would like to do is make it a virtual museum so that not just the people in Leon County where the capital is located and the surrounding rural counties can enjoy it but that people from Central Florida and uh, South Florida can take a virtual tour of the museum and see exactly what Florida's history is like and how they and their communities relate to it. Bruce Mathers is chair of the Florida Historic Capital Foundation.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. If you enjoy this program, join the Florida Historical Society today at myfloridahistory.org. Crawl out through the fallout, baby, when they drop that bomb. Crawl out through the fallout with the greatest of aplomb. When your white count's getting higher, hurry, don't delay. I'll hold you close and kiss those radiation burns away. Crawl out through the fallout, baby, to my loving arms. Through the rain of strontium-90. Think about your hero. When you're at ground zero And crawl out through the fallout back to me The threat from nuclear weapons is still a serious issue today. As Janie Gould reports, in the post-World War II Cold War era, some Florida cities developed strategies for dealing with a nuclear attack. During the height of the Cold War, communities all over the country made disaster plans. Florida had several likely targets for Soviet missile attacks. Patrick Air Force Base, Cape Canaveral, and Miami among them. Nobody expected Vero, Fort Pierce, or Stewart to take direct hits from nuclear bombs, but the region could have attracted panicky refugees. In Indian River County, officials picked a remote research facility on Oslo Road as the place where those people would have been washed down and screened for radiation levels. Roy Howard was assistant to the county engineer at the time. Realistically, we know that there would be a good number that would die, and we would have to take care of burying them. So the county uh, engineer's responsibility and the county road and bridge department would have a bulldozer or several, maybe even drag lines, that would be located at the entomological research lab. And this would be for mass burials? If oh, it yeah. came to that? Yeah. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Was this plan put to pen and paper? I mean, it was oh, absolutely. A, I was the one that did it. It's a pretty good thick notebook. If, let's say, Miami had been attacked and thousands of people from Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach had headed this way, what would the highway situation have been like? There was no turnpike or interstate at the time. Well, it would be jam-packed, and uh, a lot of the people who were radiated by the fallout probably wouldn't survive to make it here if they came from as far away as Fort Lauderdale. The county's plan involved law enforcement and the military because of the great potential for civil unrest. We knew that once you have that many people coming, there would be problems. Folks have been talking about fallout shelters, too. Roy Howard remembers seminars about them at Vero Beach High School. Did the county build a fallout shelter for uh, officials or something? Or? No, but we knew where some places were that were usable. Did you have them supplied with water and no, food? No, <laughs> Didn't go that far? No. We had plans on supplying things to those places, though, if we had uh, any idea that anything was going to happen. Did you have one in your yard, in your backyard, a no, bomb shelter? No, but I sure gave it a thought. I had a more of a positive feeling about things. I felt like it really wasn't going to happen. Do you remember mass hysteria in the community or no, no, fear? No. There were a few people, you know, that got really upset. 
And everybody else tried to calm them down, you know, and said, we're going to be okay. But as a high school student in the 1950s, Howard witnessed some of the early and often unsuccessful rocket launches from Cape Canaveral. They were just squirrely in the air, and we saw them blow up. So we knew things were possible, but uh, I don't think anybody ever got overly excited. If radiation had blown toward Indian River County and residents needed to evacuate, they would have had one way out, State Road 60. The highway had just two lanes, deep canals on both sides, and numerous wooden bridges. Howard wrote a plan that had residents evacuating to the west. Was there a designated area out there? No. Nothing? Uh, just listen to your radio, watch your TVs, take uh, food and clothing with you. and We had a list of stuff that they could take with them to uh, survive, and they would have to survive. For how long? For about seven or eight days. Kind of like hurricane planning. Pretty much, yeah. Now then, today, that evacuation plan would be pretty obsolete with the kinds of bombs that we have today. In other words, forget evacuating if it should happen today. Yeah, hopefully you still got your fallout shelters. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Crawl out through the fallout, baby. You know what I mean. Crawl out through the fallout Cause they said this bomb was clean If you cannot find the way Just listen for my song I'll love you all your life Although that may not be too long Crawl out through the fallout, baby To my loving arms While those ICBMs keep us free when you hear me call out, baby, kick the wall out and crawl out through the fallout back to me. Cause you'll be the only girl in the world. Why don't you crawl out through the fallout back to me? Why don't you crawl out through the fallout back to me? Don't you call out to the fallout back to me? This is Florida Frontiers. Artist and naturalist John James Audubon died nearly half a century before the establishment of the powerful national organization that bears his name. Today his life and work is still celebrated, not just for his incomparable bird illustrations, but for the way in which he influenced how we look at nature itself. Bill Dudley has this report. Then one day it occurred to me that what I really wanted to do in my life was to make art out of bird illustration, to portray for America, to give America a monument to the glories of nature. The words of John James Audubon is performed by actor-scholar George Frine, a retired philosophy professor who was in Florida recently for a series of Chautauqua-style performances. Born in Haiti in 1785, John Audubon grew up in France, emigrating to this country in 1803 to manage an estate his father had bought. A handsome and personable young man, Audubon reveled in life in the new country. He was fascinated by nature, and birds in particular, sketching and painting them at every opportunity. And I had not a care in the world. Hunting, fishing, music, dancing, and drawing was my whole life. I loved it. I loved to follow the birds through the woods. Felt like I was flying with them. These creatures of such melodious beauty. 
A few years later, John Audubon and his young wife were running a trading post in Kentucky, where he adopted the dress and lifestyle of the frontier. One day he saw a book by naturalist Alexander Wilson with pictures of North American birds. Believing he could do better, Audubon began to form a vision of his life's work. And decided that he would try to make a living, support his family, by doing what was really his avocation and his love, painting all the birds of America, and that he would paint them life-size. Uh, he would put one bird on each page. He began to travel, first throughout the South, collecting specimens by trapping and shooting. In contrast to his contemporaries, whose pictures looked stiff and clinical, Audubon painted his birds in lifelike positions in natural settings. He tried initially to draw from life, but he couldn't. Of course, the birds wouldn't sit still, and he was critical of ornithologists who portrayed birds as though they sat for four or five hours for this portrait. He said they're alive and moving and need to be portrayed that way. In the late 1820s, he traveled to England, where he published, in installments over the next decade, a lavish, oversized book, Birds of America, eventually documenting over 700 birds. Audubon became an international celebrity, despite the fact that his book, with its hand-colored plates, was so expensive, only universities, governments, and the wealthy could afford to buy it. He came to Florida in the winter of 1831, visiting St. Augustine, then the Everglades, and the Keys. Today, a century and a half after his death, Audubon's work remains a benchmark for wildlife artists as well as ornithologists. But did his life and art signal the start of a change in the way we look at the natural world? If you want to look at a picture of, of a landscape, if you want to look, look at the picture of, um, of, a, of a woodland area in, in which a bird belongs, then Audubon is the guy. According to Central Florida Community College professor of history, Ron Cooper, birds have traditionally been seen as objects of beauty, appearing in mythology and religion, even as national symbols on coins and flags. So that shows a certain admiration for birds. On the other hand, it removes birds from their environment. They aren't seen as natural creatures. But by depicting his birds in various activities in their natural habitats for the first time, Audubon made his subjects part of an overall ecosystem. Artists show us something about the world we may not have otherwise seen, but if we really want to see some kind of environmental integration, in which we have a member of a species depicted not only because of its particular characteristics, but depicted as a member of a biotic community, then he's the guy who really did it well. And once we see that that's the way we should look at, at birds, perhaps, then maybe we'll see everything else. Maybe it can rub off a little bit on us, and we'll begin to think of humans just as members of biotic communities and, and not something standing over and above an environmental sort of background. John James Audubon died in 1851. The first of many Audubon societies was formed in 1886, partly to address concerns that many birds were being hunted to extinction, something Audubon noticed even in his time. He wrote to an English friend that he should come to America to see it before it was transformed, while it was still a glorious wilderness continent. He knew that decline in wild nature was inevitable and uh, he could measure it a little bit beginning in his lifetime. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week 
Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.